would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 12 today. It's also printed for you in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. We are in the midst of some difficult chapters as we've been talking about over the recent weeks, chapter 11, chapter 12, and next week chapter 13. Uh, But in the midst of that, we're looking to see what God would teach us and help us to understand and know about himself, about us, and today as well about God's grace to us. Uh, Just one quick word. Uh, I'm not going to be reading today verses 26 down to the end of the chapter. That's not because it's not important. Uh, It is God's word. Uh, We're going to be focusing in on just the first 25 verses. Uh, But 26 to the end of the chapter are important because they remind us that we're a part of this bigger historical uh, 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 setting that's being given here. Uh, Chapters uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13 are in the context of Israel being at war with the Ammonites. And here as we come to the end of chapter 12, we are reminded that God is at work and that he is uh, providing uh, for his people and providing for uh, his work. And so it gives us this bookend uh, at the end of this section of 10, 11, 12, and moving into 13 of God being at work and establishing his people there. Let me read to you chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 25. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him and the sword with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. 
David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all, all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do harm himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. And went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of, because of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need your help as we always do as we come to your word. We need for your spirit to be at work. So be present here in our midst, wherever we might be, Father. Help us to see and to understand what you want us to understand from this portion of your word. But, Father, we would pray boldly that you would not just give us an understanding of your word, but that you would so move in us by your spirit that we would see your grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be strengthened in our faith. And that we would be people who are eager to go out and to live as you have called us to live being faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you are the man. David heard those words three times during his life. Earlier in Samuel, in 1 Samuel, David heard those words in 1 Samuel 13, also referenced in Acts 13, when he was told that you are the man after God's own heart. You are the man, David. You are the man after God's own heart. He heard those words again in 1 Samuel 16, where the Lord said, you are the man who will be the Lord's anointed. You, you are the man who will be anointed king over all of Israel. And then again the third time here in 2 Samuel 12. You are the man, Nathan. You are the man, David, who has done these wicked things. The first two times that David heard those words, they were words of God's grace. They were words of God's hope. It would have been very good to David's ears to hear those things. And normally we assume that as David heard the words here in 2 Samuel 12, that these words were used only as words of God's judgment. It's certainly true that they were words of condemnation. They were words of judgment against David. 
But is that all that they were? When the Lord sent Nathan to pronounce these words to David, ultimately I would suggest to you they were words of God's grace. So let's look and see how that's the case. First, let's look and see how we see God's grace in this passage because of who the initiator of grace is. Secondly, let's look and see the strategy of grace that was used. Thirdly, let's look and see the cost of grace that is described. And lastly, the hope of grace that is promised. So first of all, the origin or the initiator of grace. The first way we can see God's grace in in this passage is the fact that it was the Lord who initiated it. The Lord initiated confrontation with David. Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now when you hear those words, it should be in direct contrast to what we saw last week in 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, over and over and over again, we saw David sending Uh, David sent some messengers to find out who the young woman was that he saw as he was walking on the roof. Then David sent some to go get Bathsheba and to bring her to him. David sent for Uriah on the battlefield to come back home. David then sent Uriah back to the battlefield with his own death sentence. David sent a response back to Joab to tell Joab after Uriah had been killed, don't worry about it, it's not that big of a deal. And then at the end of chapter 11, we saw David sending out yet more messengers to bring Bathsheba to the palace where David eventually married her. Chapter 11, over and over again, tells us about David's sending. It shows us the perception that David was in control, that David was taking charge. But as we come to chapter 12, verse 1, we see that now it is the Lord who is sending. Now it is the Lord who is in charge. And the Lord sent a prophet, Nathan, to David. And in doing that, it was an act of grace. David was guilty. He had committed A capital offense times two, adultery and murder. And because he had done that, he was under condemnation of death. The Lord had no reason to send anybody to David. He could have simply killed David on the spot and it would have been justice. But instead, the Lord sent his prophet to speak with David. To bring David to a sense of conviction of his sin, to a state of repentance. And because the Lord did that, it shows us his grace. John Calvin said this, There is nothing better than when God sends us messengers of his wrath. For for then he can make us feel his mercy and cease to enjoy our sin so that we may apprehend his vengeance and our conscience may torment us to the extent of humbling us to seek pardon and remission in him until he has accepted us. This chapter begins with the Lord initiating his mercy and his grace to David by sending the prophet to address him, to bring David back to his senses. We'll see later as we come to the end of the passage, the Lord sends Nathan again at the end of the passage. At the beginning and at the end, these messengers of hope and love are sent to David. God is the initiator of grace. He is the origin of grace. 
This story shows us God's grace, not only because God is the initiator of grace, but also because of the strategy that he used in bringing David to repentance. One should notice, as we hear how Nathan addressed David, that he didn't start with, you are the man. That was the conclusion. It wasn't how David began. The goal wasn't simply to shame David or to guilt David or to convict David. The goal was repentance. That David would be brought to a genuine repentance and then reconciliation with the Lord God Almighty. The strategy that Nathan used is not only an example of God's grace, it was also very clever, it was very savvy. He drew David in. David, being the king of Israel, was also the supreme and final judge of the land. And so Nathan brought a case for David to judge. Two men, one very rich, one very poor. The rich man, we're told, had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except for one small female sheep. This young lamb is described to us like a pet of this family. This poor man had bought this lamb and he had raised it. It had grown up with him and his children. It ate of his food. It drank from his cup. And he delighted in holding this little lamb in his arms. But it was more than just a pet because notice we're told it was like a daughter to him. Now you may not be able to see there Nathan's cleverness and what he is doing. In the Hebrew, the word for daughter is bat. It's the first syllable in the name Bathsheba. Nathan here is being very clever. He's drawing David in. This female lamb was very special. It was like a daughter. It had been cared for. It had been loved. It had been treasured. It had been held in the arms of the poor man. And David didn't get the connection. The story goes on as Nathan tells it. The rich man had a visitor come for dinner. And as was custom in that uh, culture, you would provide a feast. You would provide a meal. But the rich man selfishly didn't want to use many of his, any of his very many herds and lambs. And so what did he do? Well, we read that the man, the rich man took the young lamb from the poor man. Now, when you hear that word, it again should ring bells in your ears from last week. We saw over and over and over again David taking. He took and he took and he took again. And here Nathan is bringing it right to his face. He took what was not his. But again, David didn't get it. He was too wrapped up in the story. And we're told that as he hears about the, the rich man taking the, this, this beautiful, treasured, precious little lamb of the poor man, David burned with anger against the rich man. And, and he blurted out, the rich man deserves to die. Which, by the way, went above and beyond what the Mosaic Law uh, called for in a case like this. And David may even have remembered that because he then uh, uh, backed up just a little bit and he said that the rich man should have to pay fourfold for that little lamb. Now that'll, that will come back up in a minute. We'll see the significance of that. But he says this rich man should have to pay fourfold for what he has done. Then Nathan was ready. He sprung the trap. He had David right where he wanted him and he said, David, you are the rich man. 
And then Nathan proceeded to lay out the argument, verses 7 through 9. You are the Lord's anointed. You have been anointed king over Israel. The Lord has saved you from the hand of Saul. He gave you the royal palace and wives of Saul, and he gave you all of the land of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, the Lord says he would give you everything that you need. But David, you despised God's word. You disobeyed the law of God. You broke most, if not all, of the Ten Commandments. And not only are you despising the word of God, but in verse 10, he is despising God himself. What was the result of this strategy of Nathan and of the Lord? Well, we see in verse 13, David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. Those are words of genuine and honest repentance. Think of this. David was the king. At that moment, he could have lashed out and killed Nathan. There was nothing that could have... There's nothing that would have prevented him from doing that. He could, have, he could have lashed out and killed Nathan on the spot, but he didn't. David didn't respond with power. He responded with humility. David's confession was direct, clear, concise. There were no excuses. There was no denial. There was no, yes, I've sinned, but let me explain to you why I did it. And I want you to notice David understands the extent of his sin because he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He's not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and others. But he's recognizing that first and foremost, his sin was against the Lord God Almighty. He had sinned against the Lord's word. He had broken God's holy law. He had abused and killed image bearers of the Lord God Almighty. He had violated the Lord's calling and anointing over him as the king of Israel. And as he, as he prays in Psalm 51, it is against you, Lord, and you only that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you see God's grace in this strategy? God sent Nathan to David not just to bring condemnation, not just to bring judgment, but to get repentance. To bring David to a sense of conviction for his sin and to turn him back to the Lord, to bring him back into fellowship with the Lord. Nathan didn't just lay out the case. He didn't just spread out all of the evidence, but he drew David in. He captured his mind and his heart and his conscience in the story that moved David to repentance. And if we can see God's grace and how he approached David... How much more so can we see the Lord's grace and how he responded to David? It shows us the true costliness of grace. Verse 13 may record the most important and precious words that David ever heard. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Can you imagine what David must have been thinking at that moment? David had just confessed. He had confessed to being guilty of capital crimes. And as, and as such, he knew that he was guilty before the supreme, supreme judge of the universe. And the sentence was clean, uh, clear and plain. It was death that was deserved. It was death that was called for. And yet, the words that he hears are, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And on the one hand, this reminds us that God's grace is absolutely free. 
Paul tells us about that in Ephesians 2, where he tells the Ephesian Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived. You deserved God's wrath and judgment. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what David was experiencing. He was being saved by grace. It was not his own doing. He was receiving the gift of God. David experienced the absolutely free grace of the Lord that was given to him. And it didn't cost David a thing. And yet, David found very quickly how costly the gift was. The wording of verses 13 and 14 make this clear connection in the Hebrew. And we can see it in the English as well. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. At the moment that David heard those words, he felt the true and full weight of his sin. When David heard those words, he felt the full weight of the statement that was music to his ears initially. The Lord has put away your sin. And David understand that his sin had been put away and had been put on another. Now I want to stop for a second and I want to make something clear. So please listen carefully. When we hear these verses, we, I think, naturally assume that if our child gets sick or a child dies, it's because of our sin. That is not what these verses are saying to us. This is not a normative passage for how the Lord works. David was unique. David was different. David had been set apart. David was anointed. He played a very specific role in redemptive history. He played the specific and special and unique role as the king of Israel but also as the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. David was in a different position than we are in. Much of David's life was for the purpose of pointing God's people to the gospel of grace, both in David's positive ways of showing us that, but also the negative ways of showing us that. And because of David's sin, the Lord was at work revealing the full extent of his grace Through Jesus Christ. David knew that he deserved to die. And he articulated it so clearly as he wrote Psalm 51 about this very event. He said, have mercy on me. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. David knew that there was no provision in the Mosaic law for atoning for murder and adultery. There was no sacrifice that David could make. That's the reason why he said in Psalm 51, you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. 
you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. There was nothing that David could do except throw himself on the mercy of the Lord. David knew that his only hope was for the Lord to cleanse him. Purge me with hyssop, he said, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be water whiter than snow. Again, that image of the hyssop branch used by the Old Testament priests, priests almost like a paintbrush that would be dipped into the blood of an animal sacrifice and then sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the people of God as a picture representing the atonement of sin for the people of God. David knew that his only hope was for the Lord to provide a sacrifice for his sins. Purge me, he says. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. And the Lord gave David a picture of just how costly that would be. Ultimately, it was a picture of the greater and ultimate son of David. The one who was also the son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ and his shedding of his blood on the cross. That's how the Lord put away David's sin. That's the only way that David didn't have to die. There was a substitute put in his place. And the death of David's son didn't pay for David's sin. It pointed forward to the death of the one who did pay for it. The Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we look back and we know what has been accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. That now through His blood, as we put our faith in Him, we get cleansed from our sins. We are covered by the blood of Jesus in such a way that we are not guilty and we get eternal life. Now before we move on to the last point, and we see grace in this passage, let me just ask you to notice too that even though David's sin was paid for even though David's sin was put on Christ and paid for on the cross even though the death sentence for David was removed I want you to notice that there were still consequences there were still effects of David's sin look at verses 10 through 12 as Nathan was speaking to David he says therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your neighbors in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David realized that there would be consequences of his sin, even though he was experiencing the cleansing of his sin, the, the forgiveness of his sins, the fact that he was no longer under a death sentence. He understood and he was told clearly that there would be consequences. David's house would be plagued with violence. We're going to see that played out next week and really through the rest of the book. Four of David's sons would end up dying before him. This child... And three additional sons who would die by the sword from hands within the house of David. Some scholars believe that because it was four sons of David that would die as a result of the consequences of David's sin. It was connecting it with what David said as he talked about the rich man that he deserved to pay back fourfold for that lamb. Not just violence, but there would be sexual sin that would run rampant in David's house. And all of the consequences are going to be public. They're going to be seen by everybody. 
David's sin was forgiven. The death sentence was removed, but there were still consequences for David's sin that he would deal with literally for the rest of his life. Now, before we move on, can I just can I just mention this? Perhaps the idea of consequences for our sins could be a powerful deterrent for us when we face temptation. Yes, there's forgiveness for sins. But that doesn't remove the consequences or the effects of sin necessarily. Could the Lord use that in your mind as you stare temptation in the face to know that there are potential consequences that could come as a result of whatever you would give in to? Even in the midst of these consequences of his sin, David also experienced the hope and the promise of God's grace. We read in verses 19 and following that the child was afflicted and became sick. And we read that David sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted. He prayed through the night. And he did that for a week. David knew that the Lord was the Lord of mercy and the Lord of life. And he was earnestly pleading with the Lord to intervene and to take a different path. But we read that the child died. And to the surprise of David's servants who assumed that David might completely lose it when he found out that the child had died. Instead, what they found was very surprising. Verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he had asked, they set food before him and he ate. David surprised his servants. They were expecting that he might lose it. Might even harm himself as a result. But that's not what he did. And so they went to him and they asked and David explained that he had fasted and he had wept and he had prayed while the child was alive. He asked for the Lord to intercede. But when the child had died, he knew what the Lord's will was. And so what did he do? He got up, he changed his clothes and he went to the house of the Lord to worship. And then he went home and he broke his fast by eating. And then we read that he comforted his wife Bathsheba. They shared intimacy with one another. And as a result, the Lord provided another son. This son was named Solomon, which literally means the Lord's peace or the Lord's restoration. And the Lord sent Nathan back to David at that point. He said, you've named him Solomon, but I want to give him another name in addition to that. His name will also be Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. Nathan's first judgment or first visit had brought a message of judgment and condemnation. Nathan's second visit brought the message of love and hope. David's household was about to go through horrific trouble. But even in the midst of it, they had the hope of God's grace. They had the reminder in this new child of the promise that God would always be faithful to his covenant promises. Again and again and again, God poured out his grace on David. Now, there is so much that's here. <laughs> There's so much for us to take in. But as we finish this morning, let me give you just two things you can be working on. The first is repentance. What we have here is a model for what genuine biblical repentance looks like. 
Remember what David did not do. David didn't use his power. He didn't deny what Nathan was bringing to him. He didn't deflect it onto somebody else. And he didn't try to explain it away. Yes, I've sinned, but let me explain to you why I've sinned. David didn't look for a loophole. What did David do? He owned his sin clearly, concisely, and honestly. He confessed his guilt. He acknowledged that his sin was first and foremost against the Lord God Almighty, although I'm sure that he probably went and apologized and asked for forgiveness from Bathsheba too. What we have here is a good model for us. Our own Westminster Larger Catechism asked the question, What is repentance unto life? And this is how they answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, And upon apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. This is what biblical repentance is. It is is grieving and hating our sin in such a way that we turn away from it and we turn again to the Lord and we refocus in our walk of obedience and joy in the Lord. Husbands, I would suggest to you that I don't think that we're particularly good at doing this with our spouses. Young people, I would suggest to you that you may not be really good at repenting and saying you're sorry and asking for forgiveness when you sin against your parents. But David's giving us the good example of what true repentance looks like. And whether you are a husband or whether you are a young person or any of us, this is what true repentance is meant to look like, that we would hate our sin because it's an offense to God, let alone that it hurts others and hurts ourselves, and that we would so hate it and be grieved by it, but that we would turn away from it and turn again once to the Lord. And for those of us that aren't particularly good at doing this, then we need help. We need encouragement. Sometimes we need a kick in the pants. As a pastor friend of mine has said, we need to be a Nathan and we need to get some Nathans in our life. We ought to be sensitive to times when the Lord might use us as a Nathan in the life of somebody else. But even as we might be called to serve in that way, we would do so remembering Paul's words in Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We should remember Nathan's approach to David. And any time the Lord might call us to serve in this way, we should do it with gentleness and we should do it with a goal of repentance. Of restoration to the Lord. But we also need to know that we need some Nathans. We need to find trusted, spiritually mature and wise friends who can be a Nathan to us when we need it. I'd encourage you to seek out a person or two like that and then to give them permission to confront you when they when you need it. 
And when that time comes, don't resist it. Don't dismiss it. But see it as God's grace to you in calling you back to repentance. Second thing for us to be working on is that we ought to be people of prayer that ends in worship and trust of the Lord. There's a model here for us of what earnest prayer looks like. A prayer that is earnest and intense and yet ends in worship and trust of the Lord. What did David do after he heard about the child who would die? He prayed and he fasted. He interceded on behalf of the child. He pleaded with the Lord to go a different direction. He knew that the Lord was gracious and that he might decide to spare the child. And so he prayed earnestly and with intensity for what he wanted. And it was not wrong for him to do that. But when the child died, David took a different course. What did he do? He went to the house of the Lord to worship. He knew that he needed to be in the presence of God to give God glory as he so deserved and to ask the Lord to minister to him. He not only went to worship, but he broke his fast and then he resumed life in trusting the Lord. Can you imagine how agonizing and painful and debilitating and exhausting that week was for David? Hearing about the the, the result of this child after he had spent so much time pleading. But when the child died, David showed us what true faith looks like. Even in the midst of tragedy and regret and pain, he went to worship the Lord. Perhaps he remembered Job's words. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a hard but an important model for us to follow. When we don't get what we want, when we're going through tragedy, when we're experiencing pain and loss, it's not wrong for us to pray for the Lord to be at work in the midst of that. But the end of our prayer needs to be worship and trusting in the Lord, even if we lose everything else. Second Samuel 12 shows us God's grace. We see it as God being the initiator of His grace. We see it in the strategy of grace that He used. We see it as He describes the costliness of grace. And as He gives David and Bathsheba and us as well the promise of hope of His grace. So let it move us as we consider God's grace to be people of genuine and biblical repentance. And also people who are earnest in prayer. Prayer that ends in worship and trust of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that as we read these words, it's easier said than done. So we pray for you to help us as we come week in and week out to opportunities to be faithful and to love you and to glorify you and to enjoy you and to serve our neighbors. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our repentance. Show us our sins so that we might see your grace in greater ways. And cause us to be people who are quick to repent. And Father, also help us as we go through the difficulties and challenges of our life to be people of intense prayer. But Father, even as we would ask you to do various things that we want... We pray that you would help our prayer first and foremost to be for your glory and that we would evidence that 
through our prayers ending in worship and greater trust of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.